you're new to the church, we, uh, we usually go kind of go back and forth. We'll do some uh, sermon series that are kind of topical, depending on, on what we need, and then um, some series that are more uh, exegetical, where we go through one book of the Bible um, in, in chunks. And so that's what we're doing um, while Pastor Dan is on his sabbatical. Uh, so we're going to go um, back into the book of Colossians. Um, so last week, Matt introduced us to Colossians. If you weren't here, uh, basically it's, a, it's one of the letters that Paul wrote to uh, a particular church uh, from prison. And um, the theme of the book is really about um, stripping down some of these things that this particular church had added to the gospel. So the fancy word for it is, uh, is syncretism. Uh, if you were here last week, but it's it's these things that the church said, oh, yes, you know, it's it's Jesus, he, he died on the cross, he saved us, but then you also need to do this and this and this in order to live the Christian life, and so we'll probably go into it in Colossae, and then, you know, and, and some other practices like um, circumcision, I joked in the first service, thank goodness that that particular uh, rule was done away with, because some of us became Christians later in life, and that uh, would be uncomfortable. So, so that's, what, that's what the letter of Colossians is, is it's Paul saying, hey, all this stuff that you added, you need to strip it away. Um, so that's the passage that we're going to look at today. Uh, last week, uh, Matt went through the introduction. And so this is kind of the heart, the meat of the book of Colossians. And Paul doesn't tiptoe around this. What he does after that typical kind of epistle, that opening is he launches right into what is the gospel, plain and simple. Um, He does it in in nine verses. And so um, one of the things that I want to think about as we're looking at this is that this is the gospel and everything else that's added is wrong. This is the gospel in these verses and everything else that's added is wrong. And and the, the thing that I want us to think about today is, you know, we don't do the angel worship and the dietary laws, and thank goodness we don't do circumcision, but we still add stuff to the gospel. What the Christian life looks like, we still add stuff to what that looks like. And so there's one thing that I want to talk about in particular. So we're going to look at this passage, and then I want to focus on something that at least I have realized I'm, I've added to the gospel. So let's look at uh, first, Coloss- first Colossians, there's only one, Colossians 1, 15 to 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the beautiful sunshine and the reminder uh, as we walk out these doors of how beautiful your creation is. 
and the reminder from this book of Colossians that you are over all of this creation. Lord, I pray as we dig into your word, Lord, would you show us not only how the church at, at Colossae added things to the gospel, Lord, but how we have added things to your gospel, complicating it, making it about us. Would you show us those things and allow us to strip them down? And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, so the first thing Paul does is he, he goes into this, this list of things about who Christ is. Um, and I don't know about you guys, my tendency, okay, I, when I read the Bible fast, I look at lists like this, and I kind of tend to just blow through them real fast. You know, above, beyond, beginning, and all that, just kind of read through it real fast. But if you slow down and look at these statements, it really provides the authority of Christ that really sets up the stage for the second part of this passage, which is that we have been reconciled to him. So we're going to look at these, uh, these seven qualities. I'm going to read them real fast. He's the image of God, the firstborn over all creation, the creator of the universe, the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead, the fullness of God, and the reconciler of all things. So I'm going I'm to move through these sort of quickly, but just trying to give you an idea of what some of this means. The first... Um, and I'm going to choose the first two together because they kind of go together. And I want to describe this idea of firstborn. First, he's the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. So the image of the invisible God, I, I kind of came up with a little bit of a, of, a, of a visual picture for this. If you want to go to the next slide. So on the left is four-year-old Eric. Clearly they had more, um, more for, uh, thoughts about my physical prowess by giving me a football than what I really deserved all of my life not just at that age. So on the left is four-year-old Eric. You don't know four-year-old Eric. You didn't know four-year-old Eric. I could tell you about him, but you don't know him. But on the right is four-year-old Elliot. He's five now. But you can know four-year-old Eric by getting to know four-year-old Elliot. He is the picture of me. He's just like me. And let me give you an example. If you want to move to the next slide. This is Tuesday, like four days ago. He's homesick from school with the flu, okay? What he's doing there is organizing the Tupperware drawer because the Tupperware has gotten all, all disarrayed. Like, that is my boy. That, he is sick and he is organizing Tupperware. That's what I'm talking about. You can know Elliot by, you can know me as a child. In fact, I'm getting to know myself by getting to know him. And seeing how much he's like me. And so that's sort of what this, this idea of you can get to know who God is by getting to know Christ. So he's the image of the invisible God. And then this idea of the firstborn of all creation. Um, I actually had to do a little bit of research on this. Because what does that mean, firstborn? Because he was supposed to create all things. There's actually two words for firstborn. The first actually means your first child, your firstborn child. But the second one is an Old Testament word that actually spoke to the heir for the family. So in the Old Testament, the firstborn son would have been the heir. He would have received a double portion of the inheritance. He would have received the family name, any titles, any land. That was the firstborn son. He was the heir of everything that the father had given. And so that, this word, firstborn over all creation, is this second word where Christ is the heir of creation. It's, he is the one who, who has received it. He owns it. So he's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. And then it goes on to say he's the creator of the universe. 
verse 16 and 17, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So it says, um, all, by him all things were created. Genesis 1.26, when God created man, he said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. It wasn't just one person. Christ was there when man was created. And not only was he there when, when, when he was created, but uh, everything in the world was created, visible and invisible. And I'm a little bit of a nerd, so my mind goes to like matter and antimatter and black holes, and we don't understand these things, but all that's visible and all that's invisible, things that we're still learning about. Um, and, and the Bible uses the language, not only that he created the earth, but he's literally holding it together. So he was the creator, he's there invisible and invisible. And then it goes into this list, whether thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities. And what... Um, what Bible scholars believe is this is actually a hierarchy of the angelic beings. Actually, they have a, a hierarchy of, 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 who, of control, of power. And so it says that Christ created both the angels and the angels that have fallen, the demonic realm, Satan. And so it, this, is, this is, to me, an encouragement because all things were created through him and for him. He has dominion over angels, and over the demonic world. In other words, nothing that happens in the demonic world happens without, without receiving authority from Christ. He is in control of all of it. And then we move on to the fourth statement. He's the head of the church. He's the head of the body. The church, verse 18 says. Um, he's the head of the church because he established the church. When he, before he rose into heaven, he said, Hey, you guys are going to do this now. I'm leaving the church in your hands. He's like uh, the CEO who's starting the business. He's in charge. He started it, and so he's the head of it. Everything flows through him. So he said before he left, you guys are going to be the church. And then when he left, he sent the Holy Spirit so that we would have power and, 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 and Christ within us to then go and do this crazy thing, which is moving the gospel forward uh, while he is in heaven seated at the right hand of God. Um. And, and so this idea that the head of the church, he is in charge. He's the one who said it's not just for Jews anymore. It's for Jews and Gentiles, all of us. Most of us in here probably Gentiles. So he is the head of the church because he established the way the church is going to work. And then number five and number six, he's the firstborn from the dead and the fullness of God. Verse 19 and 20, he says, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. First, the firstborn from the dead. This is that first use of the word firstborn. This is actually the one, he was the first one who was born in this immortal body. He was the first person who did that and setting the stage for all of us to be reborn in this immortal body. And then that word for the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The Greek word actually means completeness. So where we saw earlier, it said he's the image of God. He is also the complete embodiment of God. This is actually one of the strongest, most definitive statements in the entire New Testament about Christ's deity. He is God. So why is this list important? Because in this list, he is establishing Jesus' credibility. He's given him the creds, given him the street cred. He's given him, he's saying, this is who Christ is which is important because then he goes on to say this is what Christ did, which is the seventh statement and the rest of this section 
which I'm going to explain, it talks about reconciling us to him. If he is not all of these things, then dying on the cross doesn't mean anything to us. So that's what makes an important list. And actually, scholars think that this might have been one of the church's early creeds uh, or kind of doctrinal statements that they used to establish this credibility. So um, statement number seven, and then the rest of the section talks about reconciling us to him. We're going to look at verses 20 to 23 together. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before God. So the first thing I want to do is look at this term reconciliation. It's used several times in that section. The, the word reconciliation actually means bringing two warring parties together. So two parties that are opposed or warring and bringing them together. So the idea you might think of is um, maybe like two brothers who start a business together and then they have a falling out for whatever reason, you know, uh, whether it's power or money, girls, the stuff that guys usually fall apart over. Um, so they, they decide that they can no longer work together and like we've got to split the business. But I want 75% because my name's first on the billing. And the other brother says, no, I want 75% because I'm the one who does all the work. So you have two opposing brothers in this example. They both want something that the other person is either not willing or not able to provide. So that's what the word reconcile means. And so what does it mean that Christ is reconciling us? Well, there's two parties. There's God who's perfect and demands perfection, can't be, in the, can't be in, the, in the presence of sinfulness. He demands perfection from us. And then there's us on the other side. What we demand is the ability to be, to be, uh, to be freed from our sins, to have eternal life with him. But neither party can provide that in this arrangement. God can't provide, God can't, he demands perfection we demand to be able to be in his presence, and neither side can come together. And so this idea of reconciliation is what Christ did, is he figured out how to take God's perfection and our sinfulness and bring them together. And, 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 and when, you, when, you, um, when you look at what that means, in verse 21 says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So our sinfulness is both in our minds as well as in our actions. And so we tend to look at statements like this and go, yes, when I first came to Christ, I was hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. But then the idea is, and this is where I'm going with this in terms of application, is we become Christians and we still have the evil thoughts and the evil deeds. We still have the sinfulness. And so what does it mean that Christ reconciled our sinfulness and God's need for perfection together? It means that despite our sinfulness, the work is done. We have been, we are presented, and he used this in the present tense, holy and blameless and above reproach before God. That's what reconciliation means. We are presented perfect before God. Right now, for the rest of our lives, for all eternity, if you're in Christ, if you've accepted the Lord as your Savior. That's what that means. 
And that's good news. It's done. It's finished. We don't need to fix it. But here's where I want to move into kind of sort of the application. See, I think we tend to add something to this. We tend to say, yes, I've been reconciled and presented holy and blameless before God, but I need to fix the brokenness and the sinfulness in myself. I have this, this stuff that's broken in me, and, and I, need to, I need to present it, I need to fix it, and more importantly, I need to look to other people like I have my stuff together, especially on Sunday morning. The analogy that I used, um, I don't know how many of you um, still use Facebook. I know most people have moved on, but some of us old people still think Facebook's pretty popular. But if you look on Facebook on Easter Sunday, do you, do you remember looking at Facebook on Easter Sunday? And it's just picture after picture of these, like, families, and all the kids are smiling, and everyone's dressed up. I, I, I was laughing with my wife. I call it Fake Family Sunday, because none of us look like that any other time. In fact, it took like 17 pictures for us to get that one picture where we look like our family actually looks like this most of the time. But that's, you know, it's on Easter, you have to put the picture up on Facebook of your family looking perfect. And, you know, you guys, a lot of you guys are single, so you probably look at that and go, oh, it's nauseating families. I get it. I remember, I remember being there. It's like, oh, my gosh, I don't want to look on Facebook on Easter because it's just really irritating. But that's that idea for me and our kids. I want us to look perfect. And this is what I have been struggling with in my journey, is as an elder, and you look at Timothy, and you look at the lists of things that I'm supposed to look like, and I feel like, I don't look like these things. But I'm, I'm this, you know, spiritual authority, whatever that means, and so I need to look like these things. And so my response was to mask how I was really doing and just come in here looking super spiritual. And here's the thing about doing that. If, if that's where you are and you feel like I need to have my, look like my stuff's together, the more you look like you're, try, you to try to look like the stu- your stuff is together when you're struggling, the more and more you're going to spiral downward. When you're pretending, when you feel the need to pretend, that's when your actual self, that's where I was at. So I want to share a podcast with you, or part of a podcast that uh, Jason Milani actually shared with me. And I've listened to it, um, I, I, I've listened to it probably five or six times. Um, but um, this is a guy who, uh, it's an unusual authority. Um, so I want to I just preface who I'm going to share with you. The guy who's, uh, it's kind of a question and answer, and so the whole podcast is, is his, him answering these questions. But the, the, the guy who's speaking, his name is Tulian Tavigian. Uh, he was the pastor of a large church in Florida. And he actually uh, had, last year, was removed from his pastorate because it was revealed that he had uh, had an affair. Actually, even since this podcast, it's been revealed that there was a couple affairs. So why am I going to share a podcast from a pastor who fell, who fell from power because when we're talking about grace, I want to I hear from someone who's really had to understand what grace is. Because they didn't have anything else. So I meant to put the URL up there, but you can find it. The podcast is called These Go to Eleven, and it's an interview with Tulian Tavigian. So if you want to play that. Uh, my question is, so there are many people out there who are 
struggling as believers, and it seems like many of them get into this never-ending cycle of, I'm a Christian, so my life is supposed to look differently than an unbeliever's, but to a certain extent it doesn't because I keep falling into sin, I keep falling back into some of these old patterns. How can we as believers find joy in the gospel in that? Mm. How do you find your joy in the gospel when you wrestle with that day after day after day? Yeah, that's good. Um, you know, first of all, I, I, let me say this. Let me preface what I'm about to say by saying this. I, um, when I was a brand new Christian at 21 years old, I was out to change the world. I was going to evangelize the world. I was going to be the next Billy Graham. I was going to, uh, you know, I was going to, I mean, I, I was going to change the world. And then, uh, you live life. And, uh, you know, you, you get married, you have kids, you struggle in your marriage, you struggle with your teenage kids, you, you know, people in your life die, you experience the reality of a broken world and living with other broken people as a broken person. And so my perspective now has changed quite a bit from the time I was 21. I'm 43 now, and instead of saying, I'm going to change the world, uh, I say, you know, I can't change, my gosh, I can't change uh, my kids, I can't change my friends, I can't change myself, much less the world, thank God for Jesus. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the process. So the, the process of sanctification for me has been going from believing more in myself to believing less in myself mm. uh, to, you know, believing that I'm strong to actually believing that I'm weak. Uh, you know, I mean, the sanctification process is not an upward climb. It's sort of, it's downward. It's, it's growing downward in our understanding that, you know, Christian growth is not, I'm becoming stronger and stronger and more and more competent every day. Christian growth is, I'm becoming increasingly aware of how weak and incompetent I am and how strong and competent Jesus was, is, and continues to be for me. Um, I mean, that's, it's more, it's fixing our eyes on Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, and not being spiritualized navel gazers, which, you know, I oftentimes am, especially during this season of my life. I've, just, I've become probably more narcissistic, to like, how, how am I doing? Am I learning every lesson that I need to learn? Uh, am I growing the way that I need to grow? Um, I mean, it, it, in hard times, it actually becomes more tempting to become narcissistic. But, you know, I would just say in order to, the, 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 you know, to answer the question, where do people find joy when they're struggling as broken people? Number one, for me, it's embracing the fact that I am a broken person, that, um, that while on the outside it may look like I've changed a lot since I was 21 years old, I'm not sure I've changed that much on the mm-hmm, inside. Mm-hmm, yep. I, still get, I still get angry. Mm-hmm. I still get jealous. I still have insecurities. Uh, I still get frustrated at things I shouldn't get frustrated at. I'm still selfish. Um, and so as I've gotten older, I've become better at, you know, sort of masking those things so that people don't see it. Um, but the fact of the matter is, you know, I, I'm not really sure I've gotten that much better. And so if Christianity, if God's love for me is based on my progress rather than Christ's perfection, mm-hmm. I'm screwed. If God's love for me is based on my progress instead of Christ's perfection, then I'm screwed. That to me is an encouragement. 
because my progress is not much to write home about. But thankfully, Christ's perfection, as we see in this passage, he established the authority, and then he reconciled us to him. He's presented us whole in the cushion because you spend two and a half hours there. Those things might happen, but what my encouragement is that the, the fruit of a Christian life, the fruit of a relationship with Jesus, who already saved us, might be that you're more humble. It might be that you get more comfortable sharing with people how sinful you are or, or ways in which you're broken or that you're dealing with depression or that you've got a, a secret addiction that you haven't told anybody about. That the fruit of the Christian life, as he was saying, doesn't mean you get better. It means you recognize that you're not, you're not able to make yourself better. And I think that that's something, just because of it's a, it's a Western thing, kind of pull myself up by my bootstraps and make this happen, that's what we have added to the gospel is that I need to fix myself on top of it. So practically, I think it means a relationship. I think it means you dig into your relationship with Christ. And I think it means you dig into your relationship with other believers. Um, We have community groups here at the village. That's the way we do that, is create smaller communities. You're not going to come on Sunday morning and share that you you got wasted last night and passed out in front of Hopkins Deli. I don't think. Um, but you might be able to do that in a small group where people know you and they're like, man, I got you. I love you. I know, I know that. What, what happened that that, that that went sideways? I'm not going to judge you. And it might not be here, uh, and, and that's fine. You don't need to come to a community group here. But this is my encouragement. Be in a community somewhere with other believers where people can actually get to know you, where you can feel that you can live out these, some of these fruit, humility, a willing to confess your sins, an ability to recognize just how broken you are. And I'm going to close with this, verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. First, stable and steadfast. To me, those words tend to indicate that it's going to be a bumpy ride, that it's going to be a long road. Christian life is not easy. Pastor Dan talks about it all the time. Um, and I think a lot of people, they think it is. And they, they think when their lives turn sideways and they realize that their sinfulness isn't gone because they got baptized, that they think that there's nothing to this. But I think if you really grasp Scripture, you realize, hey, I'm still going to be broken and this is going to be a long road, but thank goodness that Jesus paid it all. It's done. I am presented holy and blameless before God. So it's going to be a long road, stable and steadfast, and then not shifting from the hope of the gospel. God doesn't provide us answers to all of our questions. He doesn't tell us why we still struggle with stuff. He doesn't tell us why uh, we have depression. He doesn't tell us why uh, a family member was taken from us. He doesn't give us a lot of those answers. What he gives us is hope, the hope of the gospel. So hang on to your relationships and hang on to the hope of the gospel. Bow your heads with me. Maybe you're a believer here who sort of resonated with this idea of, I feel the need to fix myself. I'm having trouble revealing my brokenness to my friends, to my family.
I feel like a fake because I come in here on Sunday morning or on Wednesday night at group, and I tell people I'm doing fine, and I feel like I'm spiraling out of control. If anybody like me is here, I want to invite you to lay aside the need to fix yourself and to cast your eyes on the risen Savior who's already fixed you, who presents you holy and blameless before God above reproach. I want to offer you the freedom of laying that aside. If you're here and you're not a believer, you've never made that decision to follow Christ, I want to invite you, even as the song we sang earlier said, don't wait until you're fixed to come to Christ. He welcomes broken, hurting people who are going to continue to be broken and hurting. But you have the freedom of knowing that you will be presented holy and blameless before God, perfect, without a spot or blemish. And you will have the hope that whatever happens in your life, that Christ will be there with you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this church. I thank you for this body of believers that I get to walk with. That I get to walk hand in hand, Lord. I think of steadfast and stable, Lord, as a a village of people holding, locking arms, holding on to one another journeying together. Lord, would you free us from the need to come in here on Sunday morning and look like we have our act together? Would you free us from the need to fix ourselves? And would you give us the hope that comes in fixing our eyes on you? Lord, thank you that you are a God who is not dependent on how I'm doing. But how I'm doing is dependent on who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're a believer, I'm going to welcome you to come up and grab communion. Come up on either side. And as we take the bread and dip it in the cup, we're reminded that that reconciliation was not free. It came at a cost. Sin's not free. Someone has to pay for it. And that when Christ died on that cross, that is what he did. He paid that price for us to be presented holy and blameless before God.